Well, hello, Living Water. Have I told you lately that I love you? I think I have come to miss you even more just this last couple of weeks, and uh, especially since Dr. Pipe was talking about missing his praise team uh, as he was going through different songs, and he thought, I can't find a good song for this one because nobody does it better than our own praise team. And I'm with him on that. So I miss you all. I miss you a great deal, but we're going to be together again, I promise. Thanks for joining us this way, however. I'm super glad that you're here, and I'm looking forward to today and being with you for this next 40, 45 minutes. We've been looking at a new study on the seven hits from the Jewish songbook, the Psalms. And as you know, the right song can take you right back to that place, that special place in your memory where you can remember exactly where you were, uh, what season of the year it was. Sometimes you can even smell where you were at the time when a certain song played because it really implants certain memories deeply into your gray matter. <laughs> and last week we looked at our first hit of the seven we're looking at in this series, and that was from Psalm 27, the Lord is my uh, light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? There's no need for fear. Next week, if you want to be reading ahead, as some of you have been doing, we're going to look at Psalm 19, the heavens talk. But today, we're going to be looking at something about Psalm 23. And just before we get there, I took a little bit of a poll of my own last week, and I'm going to do another one this week. I'm curious to know if you have watched something that was really inspiring to you. It could be a movie, maybe it's a Netflix or a Hulu or whatever. Maybe it was a YouTube. Uh, sometimes there are YouTubers out there putting out some really good work. I know we've been watching some good news with John Krasinski, and that's really uplifting. But if you've seen something in just this past week that you thought, oh, this was so moving to me, I mean, truly inspiring, I would like for you to weigh in in the chat feature there and give us one, just your top one, because Callie has her hands full trying to write all these down or take screenshots of them, because we're going to compile them like we did last week, and we'll put them out there on our Facebook page. Curious to see what you're coming up with. Uh, Mark Elwell, who taught our growth encounter just a little while ago, gave me a particular recommendation, and I have yet to see it, but I'm going to do it, Mark, I promise. Here's my recommendation to you since you've been giving me yours. Uh, I found this one as we're looking at dealing with dark times and we're gonna be touching on that subject in Psalm 23 today. There is a great sermon by Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City. He's got it in a couple of different formats. He was at a church in London where he preached this. He also preached it at his home church in New York. But all you have to do is search on YouTube or on the internet for how to deal with dark times Tim Keller, it really unpacks a very dark psalm. Psalm 88, most of the psalms David writes, he'll go to a place where he'll say, and this is bad and this is bad, but by the time he gets to the end, he says, but God's still on his throne, all still right with the world. I know I can trust God. Uh, I'm okay. But he doesn't do that with Psalm 88. Instead, it ends with, in the Hebrew, the last word is darkness. It's basically, and my best friend is darkness. Who writes a psalm like that? Well, there's good reason why David wrote that song, and Tim Keller unpacks that for you. So if you're going through a dark time, if you've gotten to that place, like so many of us have at some point in this whole pandemic situation, where you've just felt sort of dark in your soul, there's no one thing that you can point to, there's just a darkness, then look at this, because it really helped pick me up, and it put me on the right path, because it showed me 
where I can find truth and where I can get grounded so that I can find really good hope. So that's my recommendation for an uplifting something to watch. Now, today, our shepherd, looking at Psalm 23, and most of the sermons that I've heard will start to unpack the whole psalm. I'm not going to do that. I think most of you are pretty familiar with Psalm 23. Many of you have had it memorized. Some of you memorized it as a child. I'm going to look at just one specific aspect, and that really comes from one verse in Psalm 23 today, and that is verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. This is the picture of a very narrow portion of a canyon. I've actually been in this place before. I didn't take this picture, but I've been here. A friend of mine and I, back in high school, in the summer, hiked the Havasu Canyon, which is a tributary of the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona. It's a 10-mile hike to get down to where the wonderful travertine rock formations and the, the wonderful aqua-colored pools of still waters are located, but you have to hike a long way to get there. And some of the hike takes you to a very narrow portion of the canyon that looks like this, and it's in shadow most of the day. The only time you can see the sunshine is at high noon when the sun is straight up above you. But it's flat, and once you've gone through the switchbacks and your legs are burning from coming down really steep, steep, steep mountainous uh, uh, trails, then you get to the bottom, and all of a sudden, it's just like walking on flat ground again. It's almost like some of these trails are sidewalk, and it's such a luxury, especially when you get, get into the shadows. And so we hiked through that, but the hike is tiring, and it's a little precarious. You have to watch out for places where rattlesnakes might hide because there are a lot of those out there. We camped in the wrong place the first night, thinking we were close to the campground. We weren't. We were actually next to a hole where some animal uh, resided. And in the middle of the night, I felt something walking on the top of my sleeping bag. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. It felt like it could be either walking or slithering, so I wasn't sure if it was a snake or not. Turns out, after the third time of that animal getting up on top of me, and, until I finally decided I have to be bold enough to do something to scare this animal away or whatever, <clears throat> I peeked up through my sleeping bag and saw this white tail going like this, and the rest of the animal, it was a skunk. So I had a skunk walking around on top of me on the sleeping bag. Fortunately, it did not do what skunks can do because I did not startle the skunk. And after the skunk went back into its hole, I got up and politely moved a couple of hundred yards to a different location that night. But we finally got to where we were supposed to go. And we realized after that first night that what we were shooting for was not that far away. And so we hiked about another half mile down the trail and we came to this. Wow. I mean to tell you, you get to the still waters and people were swimming in these beautifully cool waters and the water looks this color. That's not modified. There are some chemicals in these travertine formations that make the water look just like that. And it is like a fairy tale place. It's beautiful. So it was worth the trip. But when we were in that canyon, especially in the narrow parts, it reminded me of something we're going to look at today. And that is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. This is an actual canyon as well, and it's in Israel. Anyone care to guess what they've named it? Of course, it's the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And it's so narrow in the bottom that it's just like that canyon that my friend and I hiked through, that when you're in the bottom of that thing, there's just no escape. There are sheer rock walls on either side of you, and you're stuck. So if there's some sort of battle going on, you pretty well have to either fight, 
Uh, that's all. That's it. That, I mean, that's your only option. You really don't have any other options. And it's the valley of the shadow of death because it's in the shadow most of the day, in fact. Well, in the scriptures, most of the time when you see the term valley, it represents darkness or despair or trouble. Joshua talks about that in the valley of calamity. Psalm 84 talks about the valley of weeping. Hosea talks about the valley of trouble. Most of the time when you see this, that's the case. And certainly when we see it in poetry, it's probably going to be representative of this kind of idea. And that's what David had in mind in Psalm 23 when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this dark time in my life, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. In the Hebrew, it actually translates more realistically and word for word into the valley of deep darkness. That's what David was thinking. There's an illustration that I'd like to take us to. Uh, Mark, I appreciated, I know that you're watching too. I, I watched your lesson, great lesson, by the way, from Judges. And you touched on something that's going to be very familiar for those of you who are in the growth encounter just a little bit earlier before this worship service. But there's an important truth about valleys. King Ahab and Israel versus the Syrians and 32 of the Syrian king's buddies because he had made some alliances there. There's a story that takes place related to this huge battle that started to take place between King Ahab and the Syrians and all of his allies against Israel. That's where we learned this great battle and this great lesson. Round one, first of all, they wanted to depose King Ahab, and so they came against him with this huge, thronging army. It was just overwhelmingly uh, lopsided. Israel was so tiny in comparison, and yet, because God is God, and God was protecting his people, and he was uh, keeping his promises to maintain that people so that they could fulfill the promises that he'd made earlier, including through Abraham, that his people would become a great nation, and that they would bless all the nations of the world through the descendants of Abraham that we see actually coming true in Christ. So God actually gave them the ability to defeat this great army. It was a miracle that that happened. Then, a year later, these people from Syria and the allies decide they're going to strategize and come with a better plan this time. And they're thinking, okay, we need a different strategy. And one of the guys, one of the generals said, you know, the gods of Israel, gods plural, small g, the gods of Israel are the gods of the hills. That gives you a clue about what they thought about deities. They would have certain deities that would be in charge of this and certain deities in charge of that those that would cause the rain and those that would be in charge of fertility. And they had all kinds of different gods in mind. Whereas Yahweh, the God, the God of everything was Israel's God. And they didn't quite get that concept just yet. They're saying, but because Israel's God is the God of the hills, here's what we need to do. Let's fight them in the valleys, in the lowlands, down where it's lower and flat, because certainly we'll have the advantage there. And that's why, Mark, I thought what you said was great, because you said they've got these chariots. The chariots can go on the flat land there. And they've got horses, and they've got all this infantry. Of course, there's no way that Israel could go up against all that wonderful military might. And in Mark's story that he was talking about in Judges, we know that the ground got muddy and sloggy. And what happens to chariots and horses? <clears throat> they can't move very quickly. And so things bogged down. Didn't work too well for them. So round two, here we have this huge, vast army that scattered so wide that they just filled the landscape. It's like when you've seen these battle scenes and somebody looks up and there are silhouettes of people all across the mountains around them. That's what it probably would have looked like. 
And God, being God, is not going to be mocked. And when you start taunting the God of Israel, you better get ready because it's almost like you've just painted a target on your back. And God says through a prophet to King Ahab, I will deliver this vast army into your hands. You will know that I am the Lord. So what happens? These two armies get together, the vast army of all the allies from Syria on one side of the valley, in this very narrow valley, and then Israel on the other side. And it's so funny what the Bible says about that, because it said that Israel looked like a flock of little goats compared to this vast army on the opposite side. They did that for seven days. And I can imagine the taunting that would have come at Israel from the opposite side of that valley, kind of like when you go to high school football games and you get the, the taunting cheers from one side, from one stands across the field to the other. Well, that's what it would have been like for seven days. That would have been, I would think, demoralizing to Israel. But they had God on their side. And so you know what happens? The Israel army, on the first day of real battle, when they go out there, killed 100,000 Syrian infantrymen that day. 100,000. Wow. I mean, that's the size of a pretty good-sized city. And they killed that many on the first day. And after that battle, what does the king of Syria do? Well, he takes off running. Ah. And he and a bunch of his soldiers run to a nearby city where they have some great stone walls built up. And they're trying to hide behind these walls. And guess what happens? Because God's in charge, the walls fall on them, and it kills another 27,000 soldiers. Just like that. And then this mighty king from Syria who's going to go and depose Israel's king is hiding in a little bedroom in a house in a nearby city, cowering and shaking to death. That's what happens when God gets involved. And that's, what we start, that's where we start to learn this great truth. Oh, wait a minute. Time out. I wanted to insert this because I thought it was important. If we're going to bring this into current times, I heard something, and I'm not going to name who said this. You'll probably know who I'm talking about if you've been watching the news at all. I heard this person say something very recently that kind of made me cringe, and literally I fear for this guy because in an interview, he said, oh, God had nothing to do with our flattening the curve. We did that. It was our behavior that did that. Now, when you read several places in scripture where people would make statements like that, when you would rob God of his glory or somehow diminish God and his power, I, I really wonder how long God is going to put up with that before he, before he does something. Could it be, let me just be honest with you, could it be that God raised up a certain group of people for just such a time as this? God who have great minds, real intellect, because he's the creator, he created their minds, people who trust him and look to him for wisdom that are in prayer groups every day of their lives, praying for his wisdom so that they can make wise decisions and help guide people to save lives and mitigate human suffering. I think that is happening. And so, yes, I think God is very involved in flattening the curve. And maybe he didn't intervene in a supernatural, unusual way, the way we might think of if we think of a miracle. But folks, just the fact that any of us are here and that we haven't seen hundreds of thousands of deaths because of COVID-19 is an act of mercy on God's part, honestly. So when I hear somebody say, God had nothing to do with that, oh, I pray for that person that maybe they'll see the truth someday because I fear that that person is just putting a target on their back. 
Now, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to say that that's what should happen. I'm saying, oh, I, I just pray that they get it someday. Now, back to Israel. Israel versus Syria, round two. Israel looked like a flock of goats. Israel's army killed 100,000 the first day. And what we learn from this is God is not just the God of the mountains. He's the God of the valleys. He's the, the God of the dark times. He's the God of our trials and tribulations, the times when we're just so overwhelmed and perplexed or just overcome with what's going on that we just feel depressed or dark in our souls. And it sure is easy to forget that God is the God of the valleys. And it's so easy for us to start doubting, to stop trusting. But I'm here to tell you, as a pastor who loves you and a pastor who's very human and who's experienced some of those feelings even during this pandemic, I got to urge you that let's keep encouraging all of us, each other in the body of Christ, to remember, don't stop trusting. Don't stop trusting. Even though you may feel like God has abandoned us, of course he hasn't. We know that. Intellectually, we know that he hasn't abandoned us. It's a time of waiting, like we talked about last week. It's a time of learning. What does God have for us to learn in this? And let's trust him to show us exactly what he wants us to do in response to this dark time. But normally, we don't live on the mountaintop. I mean, realistically, most of us don't go from mountaintop to mountaintop experience. And if we think we do, we're kind of in for a disappointment. Why is it we don't live on a mountaintop? Because we live in a fallen world. We've talked about that. I talked about that last week. I talk about it fairly often. Because we live in a fallen world, there are things that happen to us just because we're in a fallen world, not necessarily because we caused it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But things are going to go wrong. Things break. Uh, things break in the middle of the, a pandemic when you can't get a repairman to come out and fix them for you. Basements floods. Cars stop working. Water heaters blow out with their pilot light on a day when you need to get six people showered before church. I mean, all these things can happen because we live in a world that's not perfect. It was created perfect, but it's not anymore because we're in a fallen state just now. So if we know that that's true, why is it so often that we start trying to find somebody to blame when things go wrong? And we say, oh, God, why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you make this go right? I think it's just really by God's grace and patience that any of us are still here today to begin with. Let me take you somewhere as we think about scripture and we think about sort of the sanitized God that a lot of people would like to see. We kind of have sanitized versions of the Bible stories that we're reading. Mark didn't give us a sanitized version of Judges this morning. <laughs> that was a pretty power-packed action-adventure story. We're talking about one lady that comes in and does away with another person in the way she did it. Wow. I mean, we're talking a, a tent peg through the guy's temple into the ground. Yowza. That's not a G-rated story. And there are a lot of not G-rated stories in scripture. So we get the sanitized version. And a lot of times we're starting with the children's Sunday school stories. And we tend to leave out some of the gory details because we don't want to shock people and make them going home crying to their parents. What did you learn in church today? <laughs> That'd be terrible. David and Goliath, we usually hear the nice sanitized version. Well, there was this kid, he was a shepherd. Uh, he sees that there are the Philistines that are taunting Israel and nobody's stepping up to go against their champion, Goliath. And David says, it's God's battle. I'll do it. If nobody else will do it, I'll do it. 
they try to put the armor on him and it's way too big. And he says, I don't need this. So he goes out there and the kid with a slingshot takes down Goliath, the Philistine giant. Yay, God wins. That's the sanitized version. We tend to stop short of him grabbing the sword from Goliath and cutting Goliath's head off. That gets a little gory. And then the same thing happens with Noah and the ark. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have seen these wonderful murals, some of them that are hand-painted, some that you can buy and put them on your walls of the nurseries, and you have the little uh, kind of VeggieTales-style cartoon look with the ark, and you get all the animals two by two, and there's the giraffes, and they're little cute little monkeys, and they're just so cute. What we don't normally paint on those walls for the nursery, especially not in our churches, are the thousands of drowning people under the boat trying to get in and saying, let us in the ark, because the door has already been shut by God's hand and the flood is already coming because they had the warning, the whole building the ship thing that took a long time was a warning. And I'm sure that through Noah's preaching, they should have known a flood is coming. You should do something about that. We don't paint that. Why is that? Well, we don't want to traumatize our preschoolers <laughs> for one thing, but for another, I think we do tend to want a Purell God. We want a sanitized, easy to love God. We want the VeggieTales version of God rather than a God who is all powerful and it says, look guys, I'm not gonna be mocked. I have a plan. And if you go up against me, I'm gonna win because I'm God. And we tend to forget that sometimes. God being just has to punish sin. A judge who didn't punish sin would not be reelected, not in our culture. A judge who didn't punish and who said, well, I'm going to let these folks off the hook because they meant well. I'm going to forgive them, but there's not going to be any restitution required of them. That wouldn't be a judge that any of us would appreciate. But God is both just and loving. That's the God David knew. There's a lot more fear of the kind of God who can bring about retribution when people have gone up against him and done things that clearly have made God angry because there's a wrathful side of God, which is the just part of God. David knew that, but he also knew that he didn't have to fear evil or death, which is one of the great consequences of sin, because he also knew God was loving. And because God is both loving and just, he sent his only son later after all this has taken place in the Old Testament. All that that the prophecies point to in Jesus Christ, so that justice and love came, came together. They were perfectly married. There's some poetry in the Bible that talks about the kiss of God on the cross, that just justice and love kiss on the cross. And God makes a way for us to be reconciled to him because of that. That's the gospel message. So we can't forget the just part of God and just talk about only the loving part. That doesn't give us a true picture of the good shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Well, he comforts us, according to David in verse 4, Psalm 23. How does he comfort us? David gives us a couple of tools in the shepherd's arsenal of tools, in his tool belt, so to speak. He's got his rod and he's got his staff. That's the way they comfort us. We don't think of the rod and the staff being very comforting, however, but they are, because even David the way that he knew about the rod and the staff was because he had actually watched his father's sheep. So he'd been a shepherd. He knew about that. You have to protect those sheep from predators at times. And David had done that. You have to grab that rod and start wailing away at the predator. And that, how's that comforting? Well, it's comforting to the sheep, 
not so comforting to the predator, but it's great for the sheep. And so we know that a good shepherd is going to protect the sheep, even with the rod of protection. And sometimes that same rod can be the rod of correction. Because if a sheep is wandering too close to where a predator might hide out, sometimes you need to get a little bop on the nose or pushed away. I know the Dolingers have a bunch of puppies in their house right now. They may be barking as we speak. I don't know. Sometimes they need a little correction. And you need to get that rod of correction to say, ah, 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 nope, don't do that. That's bad for you. You can, you can get hurt. Just like a parent would do that and slap the little kid's hand as, as they're reaching for the stove because they have a little pain now to save a lot of pain later. That's what it is with the rod of correction. The staff we normally think of, like the one pictured here on your slide, is the staff that has a crook in it. We might even call it the shepherd's crook because sometimes the sheep will get in a really bad spot. It will wander off over onto a ledge. And as we saw from the rocky crags and the steep hillsides in Israel, there are a lot of those places. It might get out there on a ledge and it could fall to its death. It's that steep. And so the good shepherd can use that crook in the staff and reach down and hook it underneath the, uh, the sheep's uh, front legs around the body and haul that sheep to safety. So we see that God does comfort us with his rod and with his staff. Modern application. Let me think about this whole COVID-19 thing. We saw this actually happen early on. I, for one, was quite skeptical when we first started hearing news about this new coronavirus. And it's so easy for so many of us to think, oh, it's just going to be like another flu. No big deal. And then we started to have some authorities, people who are much smarter about virology than I am, that said, no, wait a minute. The reason we call it novel is because it's different. We haven't seen one like this before, which means we don't have natural immunity built up yet. We don't have antibodies in our system. So you need to take this one seriously. Now, there are a lot of people that would think, I don't care what they say. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. And so they kept congregating and they kept doing the things that they wanted to do because they just didn't obey the word of an authority and think that maybe that guy might know more than I do. And, you know, literally it ended in death for people when they did that. Now, I don't want to paint this uh, in a political sense. I'm not trying to go there. What I do know is that everybody with authority has told us there's still going to be a lot more people who are going to catch this virus. We know that. We know it. We just know it. And so that's sad. And we have flattened the curve a great deal. There probably is going to be more herd immunity, as they call it, in different populations. I hope so. I hope that means that a lot more people are going to have developed some antibodies so that we don't see nearly as many deaths. But the modern application is, if we just stop listening to the authorities and start doing our own thing, the end can be really negative in consequence. Somehow, this is my application to the Good Shepherd, there are a lot of people who would like to think, you know, I just want to keep doing my own thing. I don't want somebody telling me what I should or shouldn't do. And so they really don't want to follow a God who might have some things in his word to tell us that we should avoid for our own good. We need the rod of protection and correction. And we find that because God is the Good Shepherd. He protects and corrects us through his word. That's what I think for us is the application, the analogy to the rod and the staff is God's word for us. God's word changes us. It makes us aware of what God would or wouldn't do in a certain situation, which is why we need to get into the word more often. He brings the word to mind. 
when you need that prodding of the Holy Spirit. Have any of you had that prodding, that little check in your spirit, that red flag that goes off as you've thought about doing something? And then there's that other thought, maybe because you've been reading a certain passage and you think, oh, wait a minute. Hmm. Yeah, there's going to be a negative consequence if I do what I was just given the impulse to do. So maybe I shouldn't do that. What is that? That's the good shepherd. That's him speaking into your life the truth that says, ah, 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 you don't want to go there. You might get yourself out onto a ledge and you could fall to your death or you might get maimed or you might get into the, the area where there's a predator and you might be vulnerable. Don't do that. I think the word can really become the rod and the staff for us. So what does stay safe mean to us? I know a lot of us, I've caught myself saying that, and I don't think it's a bad thing, but I've said that to a lot of neighbors. We'd be out walking, trying to get some exercise and sunshine, and we pass at least 10 feet away from each other as we say hello. And we say, well, stay safe. Well, what does that mean? I read something this week, and I appreciate whoever posted that that took me to the article, because as I read the article, I thought, ooh, that sounds a little harsh and a little stark at first. But the more I looked into it, the more I thought, I think this is really true. Somebody had gotten an email from a friend, and normally they would say at the end, well, stay safe or stay inside or, you know, use that Purell, whatever. But this guy said that when the person who sent him that email signed off, he signed it off this way. He said, stay safe, meaning be always ready to die in Jesus. Sounds kind of blunt, doesn't it? And yet I think there's a lot of truth to that. To stay safe temporarily is a good thing, but this guy is saying there's something even more pressing and even more long lasting than COVID-19. Because we might keep ourselves safe by using Purell and washing our hands a lot and staying 10 feet away from people or six feet or whatever it is. We might social distance ourselves into temporary safety but the truth is, and this is what David knew when he wrote Psalm 23, there's something much more long-lasting out there that we need to stay safe from. Because quite frankly, there's something far more dangerous than COVID-19, and that is sin itself. That's permanent. That's the kind of thing that's death to our souls. We become walking dead people spiritually because of sin. And if we be become alive in Christ because we've been forgiven by him because of what he did for us on the cross, then we're safe forever, even if we succumb to something like COVID-19. There's something that all of us have been starkly reminded of because of this pandemic, and all the, the word unprecedented has been used again and again, because it's true. Never in my life have I seen something that's like this, and it's been reported, the deaths have been reported daily like baseball scores. And that's what's so oppressive about this whole thing. And so there's something about a pandemic that looks you square in the eye and says, you're going to die someday. And it may be sooner rather than later. If you happen to be one of those individuals who catches COVID-19 and your lungs succumb to this inflammation and you can't pull through, you may be in heaven within a couple of weeks. Are you ready for that? I think that's something this whole pandemic has been really teaching all of us. It has put all of us onto our knees and caused us to think far more seriously about what's going to happen after this life than we may have previous to that. Don't miss the forever in Psalm 23. Toward the end of that Psalm, when David is writing, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord 
for the next five years if I wash my hands a lot. That's not what my translation says. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's why he says we don't need to fear evil, even if we're going through the darkest, deepest time or the shadow of death. Because even those of us who have been through the shadow of death with loved ones who did not make it, they went to heaven. We don't have to fear that. I've been through that with a number of people in my family now, my grandparents, my parents. And when we were in that waiting room, waiting for them to make the transition from earth to heaven, there was a strange sense of peace that was way down deep that you just can't get anywhere else. Folks, I'm telling you, there's no other worldview that'll give you that kind of peace other than a view that says Christ died for you and he wants you to live with him forever. You can dwell in God's presence forever. That's why I think David could say what he said about living in the house of the Lord in his presence forever in Psalm 23. And I really want that for as many people as will accept it because I don't want to be by myself and I don't want to leave anybody behind. I want to take as many people with me because I care about you. I want us all to have a reunion in heaven someday, hopefully not for a few years if we'll keep social distancing, but I do want to be in heaven with you forever someday. So stay safe forever. Be always ready to die in Jesus. I'd like to lead you in a sample prayer that would allow you to pray an invitation for Christ to be that shepherd for you. So if you would like to pray wherever you are, feel free and pray something like this. God, I realize that I need that good shepherd. And I recognize that because I understand now that this life really is temporary. I know I need you. And I know I need forgiveness for my sin. And so please forgive me. Help me to become a new creature in Jesus Christ, as you promise. Help me to start living in such a way that I would follow the Good Shepherd and learn to trust his authority by reading his word and studying it with other people who are doing the same things. Thank you for freely offering this kind of safety so that I can dwell in your presence forever, even after I leave this earth, because my soul will go on forever. Thank you for forgiving me, and thank you for giving me a new life that's going to go on and on and on, 10,000 years and then way beyond that. Thank you for giving me a peace that passes all understanding because of your forgiveness. I pray it in Jesus' name.